We come to a passage today which is a great transformation and big step forward in the ministry of the Twelve. Now, Jesus has started his ministry, and for just a moment here, we'll just kind of get this in context, get what is about to happen. Jesus is going to send the Twelve out. But we want to see where in the ministry of Jesus that falls. So John the Baptist, uh, who's six months older than Jesus, right? He, uh, he goes out and he goes to the Galilean region for a little bit and he gathers a group of people and he goes down to the Jordan River and he starts baptizing people. And he's declaring this message, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And of course they come to him, are you the Messiah? And he's like, no, uh, he is coming, one is coming. And of course John condemns the scribes and Pharisees, you have, to, you have to remember that in the nation of Israel, they are a nation that has room for prophets. They understand from Moses and on down, there have been many prophets. But there hasn't been one in almost 400 years. So there is a group of people who represent God. They speak for God. It's been taken over by the Pharisees, who believe that a right relationship with God comes only through keeping the outward, ritualistic, external, all of these things you need to do. They've taken the law of Moses, reduced it to 613 commandments, and believe that if you keep all of them, you will be right with God. Another group of people are the Sadducees. These folks are of a completely different mindset. They only hold to the five books of Moses, which they interpret in their own way. They don't believe in the resurrection, but they're very politically connected. So this is a group of people. They're the folks who actually run the temple complex. Uh, the, The Pharisees are actually more middle class people who kind of business owners who have taken it upon themselves to best represent God. The Sadducees, they are just good with the Romans and they're kind of trying to preserve the nation. Very different groups of people, but both hold to more or less, well, they're they're both Jewish and they're very strongly Jewish. So when John shows up and begins as a prophet to preach, This is kind of, well, we better check this guy out. Wait, God is actually talking to us again? No, we are the representatives of God. So they send people down to John, and uh, John is preaching that the coming of the kingdom, any time now, the king is coming. Their representatives, the, the Pharisees in particular, kind of look at John, and they're like, well, if there's any king coming, and there's any thrones to be sat upon, well, that will be us. He will, of course, come and thank us profusely for having held the nation together on his behalf. And if there are any thrones to be sat upon, he will, of course, immediately invite us to sit on them. So that whole repentance thing, yeah, it doesn't have much to do with us. It's not like we really need to repent. And, of course, John looks at him and says, you bunch of snakes and vipers. What are you doing here? Has anyone warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Well, wait. We don't need to repent, and there's no wrath coming to us. So they don't submit to the baptism of John. In this context, I mean, John hasn't even gotten done yet. Jesus hasn't even shown up on the scene, and already the religious leaders are not really hot on the ministry of John. Jesus shows up, and of course, Jesus submits to John's baptism. He's perfectly willing to to submit to the baptism of John. And then he goes out into the wilderness... And he's there for 40 days. He comes back into the wilderness. And 
while he's now back, uh, he walks by John. He comes back to John from the wilderness. And John, this is the moment where John is like, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And of course, the disciples, we know that, we'll eventually know them as the twelve. Remember after the day of Pentecost and Judas has hung himself and Peter says, well, we've got to replace him. And the qualifications now to be an apostle is you have to have been there since the baptism of John. So at John's baptism, as Jesus comes back out of the wilderness, and John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. At that moment, Peter and James and John, different John, and Andrew at least, these guys now follow Jesus because John the Baptist is pointing to them. And at that point, Jesus goes back into, he heads north, goes back to Capernaum, and he's there for just a little bit. And then the Passover, one, Passover one. When he goes to the Passover, well, everybody goes to the Passover. And Jesus is the Lamb of God. So when he goes to the Passover, uh, and by the way, this is where he does his first miracle. He does the the wedding of Canaan of Galilee, you know, when when he goes back from John. And his disciples are there, and they're kind of following him. They go down, they go to Jerusalem. This is his first cleaning of the temple. He cleanses the temple. And, and then he goes back. And when he goes back, he goes back to Nazareth. And everybody else kind of, they all go back to what they did. Peter goes back to fishing. Jesus goes to Nazareth. Once Jesus goes to Nazareth, this is where he gets up and, and reads the passage from Isaiah and says, this day this has been fulfilled in your ears. This is almost a year after his baptism. His town is ready to, of course, throw him over the brow of the hill, and he leaves there, and he goes down back into the Galilean region and centers in Capernaum. And at this point, he goes back and and specifically calls Peter and Andrew and James and John and Matthew. and I mean, he calls them all and says, all right, time for you guys to come. This, This is the moment. You need to come follow me. And they do. And he begins to go around and to preach and to teach. And the next thing you know, he's talking to them in parables. And the only people who are actually understanding the parables are the disciples. They're coming to him and they're like, what's this parable thing? You give this story about the sower who goes out and sows the seed. And it was all kind of interesting, but what? What in the world was that? And Jesus actually explains it to his disciples, the twelve and others. Uh, He, in chapter 6, actually calls out specifically the twelve. Remember, he spends all night in prayer and calls the actual twelve from the group. And those are the folks who are now getting intense, very, very strong. They're with him all the time. And he is explaining to them all the mysteries of the kingdom. Jesus has a public ministry of three and a half years. He's two and a half years into his public ministry when we come now to chapter 9. This is, all kinds of things have happened. He's already talked to Nicodemus. He's already cleansed the temple. He's cast out demons and done all kinds of miracles. And the disciples have all just been kind of standing back and watching. The life of Jesus has this is, a, this is a really crucial moment because this is the moment that Jesus sends them out. Why 12? Well, there are 12 tribes of Israel, right? And when we look at the book of Revelation and we see the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, it's got 12 gates. 
And over the 12 gates are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. But the city also has 12 foundations and 12 foundation stones. And whose names are on the foundation stones? The 12 apostles of the Lamb. And you can have a discussion whether you think Matthias is the 12th name on that thing or whether you think it's Paul. Um, you could have a discussion about that. How's that? Uh, I'm inclined, I go back and forth. I'm inclined to think it's probably Matthias because that's who they actually call. But it also wouldn't surprise me if it's Paul. I suspect it's Matthias, however. Now, Jesus has lived a sinless life and it's not until he kind of departs then they start writing the Gospels. But this is why Jesus is qualified to actually carry out all the ministries he's carrying out. You might ask yourself, how did Jesus live a sinless life without causing, I don't know, an uproar, right? Um, well, have you ever really paid attention to a picture that's hanging straight? A picture that's hanging crooked, the minute you walk in the room, you're like, that picture's crooked. You just, you're like, you, just, you can't take your eyes off it. We got, I gotta get over there. But pictures of the hang straight, I mean, you just kind of look at the picture and you just move on. Okay, the life of Jesus as a sinless person, we're supposed to be sinless. I think Jesus was just a, I think he just kind of went through his childhood and he didn't lie, he didn't cheat, he didn't steal, he didn't cause trouble. I think Jesus just kind of blended into the background. I, I, I think for the most part, Jesus went to school, he paid attention. Got good grades, of course, certainly got excellent grades. Um, but Jesus, I suspect, lived a reasonably unremarkable life. And remember this, you see this in his ministry as well. Jesus may be perfect, but the people around him, they sure aren't. So remember when he's, what, 12, 13 years old, and they go to Jerusalem for probably the Passover. Remember, they leave, and you've done this, right? I mean, if you have kids, if you've got more than two kids, and you have ever gone to church in two cars, you've done this. You get there, and you look at your spouse, and you're like, hey, where's, where's you know, whichever one it is. And they're like, oh, they're with you, aren't they? Oh, no, I thought they were with you. And somebody better get back to the house and find out that they're in bed, sound asleep, and took an afternoon nap. And uh, is that, Am I the only one that's ever happened to? Or shouldn't I admit that? I, uh, she was sound asleep, you know. Where is everybody? Oh, they're all at church, honey. Come on, it's time to go, you know. Put them in the car and take them to church. Anyway, so... Jesus, his parents do this. They're like, well, I thought he was with them. I, I, I thought it, it's, and then they go back. And when they go back, you know, when they go back and they sit down and they have a chat with Jesus, um, you know, they're not really happy with him. Why? What, what are you doing here? And he's like, don't you know, I've got, you know, I'm at my father's house. I'm supposed to be about my father's business. You mean you actually looked for me? Why would you have to look for me? Where do you think I was? I'm, I was right here in the temple. And it says, uh, his mother says to him, you know, son, why have you treated us this way? Your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. I'm willing to bet you if you could have talked to Mary and Joseph at that moment and said to them, so is Jesus a perfect kid? They'd have gone, not today. <laughs> not today. Look what this kid did to us. 
He just stayed behind. Okay? Just because Jesus was perfect doesn't mean that everyone around him just gave him a pass. His parents would have said, yeah, no, I don't. don't." And he gave us that whole father's house stuff. I mean, Joseph is his father. You know, there would have been this discussion. This is why Mary treasures these things in her heart, right? She's trying to, how does this work? How do we put this all together? So when Jesus goes out and preaches, the Pharisees hate him. The scribes hate him. Jesus is still perfect. None of them accuse him of sin. I don't think his parents could have actually accused him of sin. I suspect as a carpenter, and by the way, first century carpenters, what Jesus was doing, he he didn't build houses. He probably built furniture. And I'm betting he made really good furniture. Almost perfect, right? Uh, But I don't think he made miraculous furniture. I I don't think Jesus sat down and like, wait till they see this. I think Jesus just made great furniture for the first century and did a excellent job at it but does that mean no one ever accused him of of uh charging too much or people are dishonest just because jesus isn't doesn't mean he wasn't accused in fact look at his whole ministry they accuse him of all kinds of stuff we'll get to the place where they actually accuse him of being possessed by the devil could one imagine of course he's not and this is the moment where he gets, his, he gets his disciples together, and here we are, probably two and a half years into his ministry, and you know the Sermon on the Mount has occurred, and a variety of things have come to pass now, but the, the ministry has now grown to the place where Jesus is now known. In fact, remember, we just went through the passage there with Jarius. Remember, he came back, and he lands, and there's this huge group of people waiting for him, and there's such a crowd, he can barely get through the crowd to get to Jairus' house, and actually, he didn't get there before his daughter died. So the moment has now come that Jesus is going to multiply his efforts. So, chapter 9, verse 1. He calls the twelve together and gives them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. Okay, guys, you've been with me one-on-one now, more or less, for a year, give or take. You've been familiar with the ministry of Jesus and have traveled around with him uh, to the went down to the Passover. By the way, that first Passover is where he goes back and talks to the woman at the well, and they're with him there. You guys have been with me. Now, it's you. Really? Yep, this is it. You've seen Jesus cast out demons. You've seen how that goes. You've seen Jesus heal the sick. You know how that goes. You've heard how Jesus deals with people and how this thing works. Now, This is the moment for you to get out there and to let Israel know that the kingdom of God has arrived and the king is in their midst because you're going to reverse the curse just as Jesus has done. Jesus goes around and reverses the curse. People are sick. I'm going to make you well. You've been demonized. You've been afflicted with the demons. I'm going to get rid of them for you. The the power that Satan has over you is going to be broken. The power that sickness has over you is going to be broken. I'll calm the storm if I need to. Jesus will do whatever it takes to show people that he is the king 
in bringing the kingdom. And so he takes the disciples and he says, it's time for you as my representatives. Now, Jesus knows that he's shortly, within a year, maybe a little less, is going to be departing. And they're going to be left on their own. They, they don't get that. He'll even tell them that. And they're still like, what, what? what does he mean, this raising from the dead thing? I don't, I don't know what he's talking about. Obviously, nothing's going to happen to Jesus. He's going to overthrow the Romans and sit on that throne. And, and clearly, that's what's going to happen. They're, they're convinced of that right up until he actually dies. So they're just not paying any attention, but Jesus is. And he knows that he's going to leave them. How are they going to do? So this is the moment. You need to get out there. You need to do this. You've been traveling with me. Now is the time for you to do the things that need to be done. All right. What does he tell them? How is this going to go? Here's what I want you to do. Now that I'm sending you. Don't take anything with you. Pretty much the clothes on your back. That's what I want you to take. Don't go buy a staff. If you have one, fine, you can bring that. I mean, if you're standing here with a walking staff, that's okay. But don't go get one. If if you're fearful of robbers or bad things happening to you on the way, animals, wild animals, oh well. If you got a staff, good for you. But if you don't have one, don't go buy one. Don't even bring a bag. Like, well, wait, i got to have supplies. I mean, what? You're just sending us out? You're sending us out. And, and we don't even get to go buy something, a little something for protection. We don't get to bring a bag full of supplies. In fact, no bread. Oh, and by the way, no money to buy any of this stuff either. Really? Yeah. And no two changes of clothing. No changes of clothing. Now, I don't know about you, but my wife, um, you know, she has some health issues, and it's not uncommon for us to plan a number of doctor's visits. And we will go up on a Monday and try to get in one appointment, and then we'll spend the night. And we will spend the night and then have three or four appointments on Tuesday. And I have news for you. For us to spend one night up there in San Antonio, yeah, you know, right? I'm... I'm well, somehow the list just gets kind of long, right? I mean, well, of course, we've got to have this, and we've got to have that. Next thing you know, you've got a suitcase. One night, you're looking around the suitcase. Okay, Jesus is looking at his disciples, and he's saying to them, I'm sending you, and I don't want you to bring anything. I don't even want you to bring a bag. I don't want you to bring any food. No money. No change of clothing. In fact, don't even, if you don't have a staff with you right now, don't. Don't get one. I want you to have zero preparation, and by the way, go. That's how it went. Now, it's important, and we're not going to get to Luke 22 for a little bit, so you know, I'm going to read for you. He sends them out again later, and that is kind of a permanent, the Great Commission send out. And the instructions there are very different. In Luke 22... Verse 35, he, he says to them, so when I send you out without a purse or bag or sandals or, I mean, you know, it's like, don't, don't bring anything. Don't, no second pair of shoes, nothing. Uh, did you lack anything? And they said, they said, no, nothing. So he says to them, but now, if you have a purse, you need to bring it. And if you've got a 
bag, you need to bring it. And by the way, if you don't have a sword, you should probably sell your robe and go buy one. Let me just point out for you, by the way, you might want to write down Luke 22, 36. If you get into, and it's hard to believe you've come to this place. There are churches in Texas and in the country where people show up and start shooting. Um, By the way, if that happens here, we have a number of folks who have uh, apparently sold their tunic. And uh, we have folks in this assembly who are armed. And they should be. And if you're challenged, you're like, well, wait a minute. Should, you know, isn't Jesus going to protect you? Uh, Luke 22, verse 36. He says to them, if you don't have a sword, you should tell your robe and go get one. They didn't use their sword to cut bread, okay? This is, this is not to slice bread with. There's only one reason you own a sword, and that's for protection. Jesus is okay with you protecting yourself. It's okay to protect yourself. Jesus gives the command to them. If you don't have a sword, you need to get one. I'm sending you out like sheep among the wolves. Now, he's not sending them out to go to war with anybody. He's not sending them out to be aggressive or the aggressor. But he is making it very clear to them that, you know, if you're walking down the road and the thieves jump out to take everything you own, it's okay to pull your sword out and defend yourself. It's okay. So if you're challenged on that, that's the passage. But this morning, we're not talking about the second sending. We'll talk about that later when we get to Luke 22, which... By God's grace, eventually we will arrive at Luke 22. We're only in chapter 9. It could be another year before we get to Luke 22. Depending on how long that guy keeps talking, I'm telling you, he just keeps going. Anyway, so we're talking today about the first sending. And on the first sending, there is a lesson that Jesus wants them to learn. And this lesson is, it's pretty clear, right? It's pretty obvious. I'm going to send you out there with nothing. So you're going to have to depend on what? Jesus. Even though he's not with you. Jesus has been with you. You've been with him. You've known about Jesus' ministry for a couple of years now, and you've actually been with him for the last year. And any, anything you needed, Jesus has been there. If you were hungry, Jesus made sure you've got something to eat. He'd take you to the cornfields, or for that matter, when you got the few loaves and a couple of fish, you know, I handed them out, and everybody got a basket full when it was all done. Jesus feeds us really good. If you're in the storm, Jesus calms the storm. But now you're going out there all on your own. And oh, by the way, don't bring anything. The moment is going to come. Though Jesus sends them out with second time with their bag and extra sandals and tunics. But the fact is that if you get to the place where you got nothing, you need to know that even then God is going to take care of you. And so this first sending out, it's, it's kind of like boot camp, right? It's kind of a, it, this is the moment where we're going to really make sure that you learn the lesson that even if you don't bring anything, even if you don't bring food and you don't bring money and you don't bring a change of clothes and you don't even bring extra sandals, you don't even bring a walking staff if you don't already have one in your hand, don't worry. God is going to provide for you. Just Go. Just go. God wants you to go. And if you feel like, well, I'm not ready. I'm not prepared. Wait a minute. I've got to, let me run home. No, no, you don't need to do that. When the opportunity presents itself, go. Do it. Just go do it. 
In fact, I'm deliberately sending you out there at this moment to just two by two, you, you two, you two, you two, and, you know, I mean, you just you put them together in pairs and sent them out. Go. And we don't have a record of how far they were to go. It was probably a time frame. He probably sent them out for, who knows, 30 days or so. And just go out and, and just go to the cities and preach the message, which we'll get to in just a second. All right. So when you get to a city, what do you do? Verse 4, when you get there, whatever house you enter, stay there and take your leave from there. So you're going to go into the cities, and when you stand up and start preaching that the kingdom of heaven has arrived, and you start performing miracles, which, by the way, I've, I've given you all the authority to perform miracles, you're going to be able to give sight to the blind, you're going to be able to make the lame walk and the deaf hear and the dumb speak, and you're going to be able to cast out demons. And by the way... You should note, those are all a package. All of those things are first-class miracles, including the casting out of demons. So all of those things go together. You're going to have the ability to preach the kingdom has come, and the king is here, and we are ambassadors of the king, and we are representatives of the king. Now, when you go into a city, and two of you go there, and two of you go there, and the, and the two of you go in the city, you're going to have people generally, who will respond positively. They will come to you and they will offer to let you stay at their house. Remember, in the first century, there were no holiday inns. There were no motel sixes. There were, there were no hotels or motels at all. There were <clears throat> um, brothels. Those places existed for those people who traveled around. Uh, but other than that, if you weren't an immoral person and you weren't traveling around engaging in immorality, you needed a place to stay. So it was common for people to invite total strangers to their home. Remember, these are folks who probably didn't have much of anything to steal anyway, even if you were inclined to steal. And when it came time to sit down at supper, uh, we're not talking about families of two and three kids. We're talking families of nine and ten and twelve kids. So you know what? A couple of extra plates at the table, nobody even notices. I mean, if you've got that many people and you're cooking for them, believe me, there's, you've you got plenty. So, Jesus says to them, when you get up there and you start preaching publicly and someone invites you to their house, probably the first person who invites you to their house, go. Here's the problem. When you go back the next day and you preach again, and it, the word gets out, you have the ability to give sight to the blind. You have the ability to have the deaf hear. And the rich people are going to come find you. And seriously think about it. Imagine that God gave you the ability to at will heal anyone who came to you. Just think how much money you could make. I mean, really think about that. And the temptation to use this kind of an ability to enrich yourself. <sighs> okay, well, we're, we're not going there. But, man, last night, that place we stayed at, you know, they, they did. They, they had a really big smile and clearly a warm heart. And they had a really small house and a really cold supper. 
okay? And now some rich person has come to you and they're like, hey, where are you staying anyway? Oh, come to my place. I mean, wow, I have God. And, okay, they're already not carrying anything, right? He's already told them, don't even bring a bag. So when they get up in the morning and walk back out in the center of town, they're carrying everything they got. And the temptation to be drawn to the rich person's house who only wants to take care of you for giving sight to their blind son or daughter or allowing their deaf son or daughter to hear, and they just want to take care of you. You think that his disciples, you think any of us wouldn't be tempted? Uh, Yeah, last night we spent at uh, that house that could barely feed us all, and we slept in this cramped little bed with three kids dangling all over us. And uh, this guy, I mean, he's, look at this place. That's why Jesus specifically says to them, whatever, whatever house you go to, first house to invite you, you just go there and you just keep going back to there until, until you've preached to the town and everybody has said or done whatever they're going to say or do. You've healed everyone who wants to be healed. You've preached the message to anybody who wants to hear it and then it's time to move on to the next town. And this is... The next thing he says to them, the question is, well, what if they reject us? What if we go there, and we've seen this happen, we've seen it with Jesus, what if we go there and we preach the message and kind of find out, maybe initially they want to hear us, but as we begin to tell them that they need to repent, and they need to turn from their sin, even though they're happy to get the healing, what, what happens once they've gotten everybody healed who wants to be healed, and they just don't want to hear this message anymore? Verse 5, as for those who do not receive you, well, as you go out from that city, here's what you need to do. You need to shake the dust of your feet. Just shake the, just shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Now, we're not, we don't do this. This is not, I mean, maybe you do, I don't know. This is not a, a custom we are particularly familiar with, but they were. The Jews... And they weren't alone in this, by the way. I don't mean to make the Jewish people sound bad. Everybody was prejudiced in the first century. The Egyptians thought pretty highly of themselves. The the Romans thought pretty highly of themselves. And the Greeks thought pretty highly of themselves. And I mean, everybody was, they all thought highly of themselves. So the Jews acting this way, they were hardly the only people who act this way. But this is how they would act. Because Israel is the holy land, when you, if you had to, go into any kind of Gentile territory, when you came back and you stepped onto the ground in Israel, well, the first thing you did was you, you know, you're going to shake the dust off your cloak, off your coat, off your robes, and you, you shook the dust off your feet because this is the dirty goyim. These are the Gentiles, and I don't want even their dust defiling me. Can't believe I had to leave Israel to go out into the Gentile world anyway. So, and if you're a Gentile and you're standing there watching them, there is no response to this other than, that's pretty insulting. I, I mean, they're literally shaking my dust off them unless they be defiled. You know, so, you know what I mean? It's like, what? Oh, yeah, that's exactly what they thought of the Gentiles. Jesus tells them, to do this to their fellow Jew. You go there and you preach the gospel and they reject it. They don't want to hear it. 
when you leave that city, you make an actual public showing. You don't, you don't leave in the middle of the night and just sneak out. Oh, no. Oh, no. You walk to the gate, remembering that at the gate, that's where all public business was done. If you were the mayor, as it were, of that city, where you would go is you would sit at the gate. If you had a legal issue and you wanted to get your legal dispute solved, you would go to the gate. Remember the virtuous woman, right? She's out here working herself to death, and where's her husband? Well, sitting down at the gates. He's sitting at the gates not because he's just sipping coffee. He's down there actually as a ruler of the city. That's what he was doing, administration. He's, he's judgment. He's making sure justice is done and that the poor are taken care of and the widow's cause is being heard. So this is the very place that you were to walk to and with everyone standing there watching you, this is what you did. You shook the dust off your, your feet and you pronounced a judgment on these people. Uh, if you're thinking, well, I don't know, this is just the first sending of Jesus, right? So, I mean, maybe this is a unique thing just for this particular sending. Um, not so much. When Paul travels around, and in the book of Acts, if you look, there are several places where Paul says to the Jews, I'm done with you all. I preached the gospel to you, and you didn't want to hear it. And so... They shake the dust off their feet. Paul does it a couple of times. Um, he does it in Corinth to the Jews at Corinth. Just says, okay, <laughs> your blood be on your own heads. I'm clean of your own, of, of your, your blood. And I, from now on, I go to the Gentiles and shakes the dust off his feet. When we preach the gospel... We want to be as kind as we can be. We want to be as gracious as we can be. We want to, we want to give people the gospel. We want to, John 3, 16. And, but you know, there does come a moment. There does come a moment when people understand the message. They understand that God has actually sent his son for them, and they just don't care. They could give you the gospel back as good as you can give it to them. And you know what? They don't care. Those folks, they use discretion, but you know, one of, the, one of the things you can do for them is let them warn them strongly. You're coming under judgment. Um, you've heard the gospel. It's not, it's not like you don't understand the gospel. I think the average person out there if, if you were to just go out with a clipboard and just ask people one question, just, just go out there on the street and ask them one question. You're not going to argue with them. You, don't, you just want to hear what they have to say. And here's your question. What do you think the Bible says you need to do to go to heaven? I guarantee you 90% of the people you ask will answer that question incorrectly. Even if they think they know the answer. Oh, well, keep the Ten Commandments. That's the wrong answer. That is not what the Bible says. So before... You go put the big sandwich sign, you know, turn or burn, you're all going to hell, you know. But before you strap that on and start marching around and casting judgment on everyone, you might want to actually try to help them understand what the gospel actually is because most people really don't get it. They, they don't understand the gospel. Now, they may not want to come to church and they may not want to hear the Bible and 
But they're not rejecting it out of knowledge. They're rejecting it out of ignorance. Beg God to give you the wisdom to figure out how to help the people in your circle to understand the gospel. But once they actually understand it, once they actually can give you the gospel back, and then with ridicule and cynicism and sarcasm basically tell you that they don't care about God and Jesus and his sacrifice for them, that actually is the moment to help them realize you are casting off your opportunity for eternal life. Jesus told his own disciples, shake the dust off your feet as a sign to them. Let them know that they have crossed a line, that their Messiah was here, that the representative of the Messiah was present among them, and they told them to get lost. You need to let them know exactly what they're doing. And do you think that the, you know, the people they did this to, you think they were like, oh, isn't that nice? Oh, oh no. They were offended. They were upset. This was an insulting thing to do. When's the last time you insulted somebody you gave the gospel to? See, we live in a culture, and you have to, you know, like the fish in the water, right? You have to, you have to really think. We live in a culture where we have to be nice. We are wailed over the head with being critical, judgmental Christians who sit around and condemn everybody. So we don't condemn anybody for anything. We just kind of... Mm. Um, Are you sure that's the proper response? Are you sure? There's a huge pressure on us to just shut up. Do you yield to that pressure or do you speak truth? You don't have to be angry. You don't have to be mad about it. But do you just speak truth? You do no one any favors. If you've got some guy who thinks he's a woman, sorry, God made you a man. And for you to lie to yourself and try to lie to everybody else about it is doing you no favors. This is, you are going to be miserable as long as you try to deny reality. You're a creature made by God, and he made them male and female. And the sooner you yield to what God has done for you and submit your life to God, and acknowledge that you are what you are, well, you know, the better life is going to go for you. And if you just go out and lie about it to yourself and everyone else, why would we go along with that? We are people who speak truth. It could be kind, but the kindest thing you can do is help people know the truth. They'll be very offended. You think, that you think they're going to be offended. Let them spend 20 years in hell and see how offended they are. We have to speak truth. Jesus sends his own disciples out to the nation of which they are all members and tells them, if your message is, is rejected, shake the dust off your feet in their sight at the city gate and make sure they see it. And yeah, they're going to be offended. Mm-hmm. Just wait. Just wait as we continue going through the Gospel of Luke and see what Jesus has to say to people. You bunch of snakes and vipers. Liars, hypocrites. Not only will you not enter into the kingdom of God, but you won't allow anybody else to do it either. It's exactly what he says to the religious leaders. 
And the disciples are like, Jesus, you know, you offended them. Uh-huh. Yep. But they need to hear the truth. So they do. They depart and they begin going about the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. The, the gospel is a great message, but you have to hear it. You have to repent. You have to, you have to admit that you are a sinner. You have to recognize that, guess what? God did not have to send Jesus. And oh, by the way, Jesus did not have to come. The gospel is the message of the grace of God. People should fall on their face in gratitude to God for sending his son for them. Lord, what were you thinking? Sending your son for me? I am unworthy. You're kidding me. Your perfect sinless son died in my place for my sin? Seriously, Lord, what were you thinking? I don't deserve that. I I cannot believe you were willing to do that. Instead, we're kind of like, well, of course Jesus died for us. I mean, why wouldn't he? God's in the business of saving people after all, right? And of course Jesus died for us. And you know, when the moment comes that I'm ready, I I guess maybe I'll live for God, uh, maybe. Hmm. That is a complete misunderstanding of the gospel. When we understand the gospel, we come to God. I can't believe you died for me. That's the message. God has sent Jesus, and he didn't have to. And we had better come to God with broken, contrite hearts, thankful that God sent his son for us, undeserving sinners. When we were yet without strength, In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. What was God thinking? Sending his own son to leave heaven? To come down here and to be spit on? Beaten? Mocked? To die for us? Really? Yeah. Wow. It's hard to believe. Yes, it is. That's the gospel. And believing that is what's going to get you into heaven. Keeping the Ten Commandments isn't going to do a thing for you. Except make you rely on your own goodness and the Ten Commandments. That will send you to hell. We need to come to God with broken hearts. Saying we are undeserving. That's the gospel. You know, when, when everybody stands up there on the final judgment, What's going to decide whether you go to heaven or whether you spend eternity under the wrath of God is not whether you're a murderer, an adulterer, deceiver, covetous, or proud. Those sins, you'll pay for those sins while you're in hell, but those aren't the sins that will send you to hell. The sin that will send you to hell is you refuse to believe that God sent his son for sinners. That's the sin that will send you to hell. You didn't come to God and thank him sending his son when he didn't have to. That's why people will spend eternity in hell. People who commit murder and robbery and selfishness and those folks, lots of those folks are going to end up in heaven because they repented. They actually came to God and said, what was I thinking? You know, here's my sin. Can you forgive even my sin? Yeah. Even murder? Mm -hmm. Paul murdered people. God forgave him. God forgives. God wants to forgive. But you've got to come and admit you're a sinner. 
And by the way, it's not an invitation, it's a summons. Your sovereign Lord commands all men everywhere to repent. It's not an option. We come to God and beg and say, oh Lord, you know, I mean, I've been walking across eternity on rotted boards. The fires of hell have been licking up around my ankles and I've just wandered across those boards without even thinking about it. And at any moment, they could have collapsed beneath my feet. But you sent your son for me? Really? Okay, Lord. Here I am. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be the people who are thankful, the people who understand, the people who go forth into a lost and dying world and speak truth. It's hard, Lord. You know it's hard. You, you know that we have places of employment, we have neighbors, we have relatives and family where if we were to speak the truth, they would be so offended and very upset with us. And it's difficult. But Lord, give us the wisdom to see eternity and to speak and to help our society and our culture and our friends and our neighbors and our loved ones, that serving you, that's what we're called to do. And may we live lives that reflect that. Help us to never lose the wonder of your grace bestowed to us. And Lord, if anyone is here today who has not come and begged your forgiveness, may this be the day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.